Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. Today, I'm flying solo. He's getting ready to, he's heading out to India for India, um, Australia, um, whereas I am in the studio doing England, South Africa at the moment, and then we'll be doing England, New Zealand after that. So I'm covering those series and he's covering India, Australia. So between us, Certainly got the big three covered, if nothing else, and a little bit of New Zealand, uh, South Africa thrown in as well. Um, uh, interesting week. Uh, as I said, I, because I was covering the South Africa uh, one day, is one thing really occurred to me uh, was that in that first game specifically, where England obviously got a long, long way in front, you suddenly noticed that there was more riding on it than is a, a normal bilateral game. And you kind of have to look at the two different situations of the team. England are, I, I, I mean, Jason Roy has not played a list A game or a list A one day, I suppose, since uh, for Surrey since the last World Cup. All of his one day internationals now are for the national team. Um, and because of that, um, he certainly has a situation where um, when he lost form, I'm not sure how he specifically was going to pick it up other than T20. And as we've seen him with players like probably someone like Nicholas Puran, it's really hard to just pick up form uh, playing T20 cricket. You know, you don't stay out there as long. Sometimes the situation dictates that you have to go very hard very early. You know, all these sorts of different things happen. And I think um, in Jason Roy's case, uh, there's a real, it's quite obvious, well, I shouldn't say it's quite obvious. I think what happened with him is that teams around the world worked out that you just bowled as much spin to him as possible early on. Probably spin that uh, goes away from the bat. He then spends a lot of time working on his reverse sweep. Ends up being quite good against spin. And uh, <laughs> what normally happens when you when you uh, work a lot on one thing, the other thing that you're good at slips a little bit. And pace bowlers started troubling him. But if he's not in the middle for long periods of time, I think that does uh, give you a bit of problems. And you can understand at his age as well why he'd want his body um, uh, to be, you know, uh, kept as long as possible. He wants to earn for uh, as many years as he can. So he probably doesn't want to play all the extra cricket. However, from a one-day World Cup sort of uh, point of view, it all, all becomes a little bit tricky. And if you look at Jason Roy's situation, England's situation is slightly different. I still think we probably would assume they're in the best two teams going into this next World Cup, even if their record at the moment looks horrendous. I think they've lost their last five one-dayers. And the difference is, is that you can watch England playing in South Africa and you're watching a team 
trying different, you know, lineups, trying some players, resting some players. Who knows what's going to happen with Ben Stokes? You know, the, the rumors couldn't get any louder um, uh, that Ben Stokes is going to come back and play in the World Cup. And, you know, some of these rumors are being said by people who know Ben Stokes personally, right? So I would say that it's it's definitely a conversation that someone at the ECB has had. I would say that there's a very big chance that Ben Stokes has told Rob Key if they want him for the World Cup, there's a chance he'll come back and play it. Obviously, Joe Root's being arrested, you know, um, Bairstow's injured. You know, there's all these different things happening with England, so they're trying a few different things. Completely different situation is happening with South Africa. South Africa may not get to the World Cup. They've now got to go through the qualifiers. I would still back them in the qualifiers um, compared to perhaps Sri Lanka and West Indies um, as the, the strongest team if they ended up uh, in, in that tournament just because that bowling lineup is legit. Although I suppose we would have said that against the Netherlands as well in the last World Cup, but that didn't go so well. But just because it is a different level, I think, than either of the other two teams have. And I think the, you know, going up against Rabada and Nokia and Magala now, um, Ngidi, you know, there's a lot of uh, Janssen. That's a lot of heavy hitters to go up against if you're, you know, one of the associate nations or even one of, you know, the, the lower down test nations. That's going to be tough to go up against that those kinds of attacks. So I think from that perspective, I don't think it's, it might be the, exactly what South Africa needs is to go to the World Cup and, you know, reflex and play some extra games and, and come back um, uh, feeling better. I don't think they need to not qualify for the World Cup, which is probably what I thought of the West Indies a couple of years ago. I thought it might have been better for West Indies cricket had they not qualified for the 2019 World Cup. You can't really ignore the issues then. You know what I mean? You have to start from scratch. You have to work out exactly what you're doing. And I think that ever since then, they've been kind of patching things together. Um, I think there's a lot of smart people in West Indies cricket that want to do good things. But as it's currently standing, or, you know, it's, it's not going well. And, and the same issues keep popping back up. Whereas I think with South African cricket, it is slightly different. But even this, the scare of going into the qualifier. But what you saw in that first one day against England was uh, England were clearly the better team out of the two. The conditions certainly favoured um, South Africa in that particular game. I'd say all game, it was really more about the, the quick bowlers uh, bowling pace off. You saw Joffre Archer go for a lot of runs. You saw Anrik Nokia go for a lot of runs, whereas the guys who were bowling you know, a lot more slow balls certainly got a lot more purchase with their cutter specifically on that surface. And then halfway through England's innings, um, the pitch changed a little bit. You know, The lights came on, the ball started skidding on, nipping around a little bit more. And suddenly, the all, all the very good seamers, um, you know, after Magala's breakthroughs with his reverse swing, just got completely on top of England. But the difference is that South Africa were playing their game like they had to win it, all right. And in one day cricket, how often do we see that outside of World Cups? And England cl clearly weren't doing that. That's not to say that you put eleven players out on the field, a lot of them playing for future careers, that they're not going all out. But there was a a real notable difference between the two sides. One side felt like it was playing for its future, um, and the other side felt like it was tuning up for the World Cup. Things were going well. Uh, they lost the openers, and then it all fell apart. And they were clearly still upset at that. But I don't think it was. I don't think it had the same emotional impact um, that, it, uh, that uh, on the game that it did for South Africa. The World Cricket League is a really, really interesting thing. It's done so much great uh, things for places like Netherlands. Uh, you know, even for uh, Ireland um, as well. Uh, you know, those smaller nations playing so much cricket, getting their players more and more experienced, traveling to places they don't usually get to play cricket in, all those sorts of things. It's just making their players feel more professional uh, within the squad. 
it's a really great thing. The problem with the World Cricket League, of course, is that it happened, you could almost argue 30 years too late, but certainly 20 years too late. And uh, had the World Cricket League uh, uh, been around earlier, I think, you know, it would be interesting to see where a team like Kenya might be now. It would be interesting to see how Bangladesh might have developed a little bit quicker. Um, you know, all those sorts of things that have happened in cricket that, you know, didn't really come along. Ireland might have developed quicker as well. The Netherlands, you know, a, a team that's always been around um, uh, the edges. Scotland might have got their act together earlier because there was something to play for from the, the lower teams. But also from the higher teams, you know, if uh, depending on your age, if you're over 30, you probably remember the seven-match bilateral series of which if you remember the results of many of those series, it would only be the ones where someone won like 6-1. Or I don't know if anyone ever won 7-0. They probably did. Um, you know, Occasionally, there was a really close seven-match series. There were five-match series, of course. Once the, once the T20 sort of came in, obviously, there was no reason to play those ridiculously long series, and you had to split them up and play T20 internationals anyway. But a lot of that bilateral um, one-day in T20 cricket is just, it doesn't matter. So the World Cricket League is going to matter occasionally. You know, it, there, there are going to be times when teams are going to try harder. And maybe it only matters for, you know, the team who is 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, those, those sorts of teams. But that's still a lot more than what we used to have in bilateral cricket. The problem now is, obviously, it's been cancelled because there's no way to fit it into the system. So much cricket. And that's why South Africa are partly in this position. You could argue that they weren't going to do very well against Australia anyway. That's fine and i certainly wouldn't i uh, you know i wouldn't i wouldn't spend a lot of time disagreeing with you there um let, let's say best case scenario they beat australia 2-1 if australia is um also um you know fine-tuning their team rather than putting out their best 11 um south africa was still in a pretty ordinary place in this in this world cricket league and i think beating australia 2-1 is you know, probably a, a, a tough ask for them if australia put out a strong team but the problem of course, comes back to what I said before, is that there's no room. So they've taken it out. They've brought in this great idea way too late. I think if it had been running for a very long time, it would be much harder to cancel it. I'm not sure necessarily we need bilateral one-days anymore. I think, you know, getting rid of bilateral one-days and actually having a permanent World Cricket League um, structure, and I would double it and have it for T20 cricket, would make a lot more sense. But in a franchise world, I don't know how you fit all these things in. And so I think if you watch that first game, uh, was it Bloemfontein the first game, I think? Um, if you watch that game between England and South Africa, it just felt like at least one team was playing for something to win. And if you've ever watched any associate cricket, you know, one of the reasons that associate cricket, obviously the standard can be wild and, you know, uh, wild, well, wildly different, I should say. Um, quite often a lot of, you know, a lot of associate teams might have four or five players who are genuine, you know, professionals. They might have four, another three or four players who might one day become professionals. And then they have club cricketers um, in their side. But when you watch those games, because every game in associate cricket matters so much, I remember being at the, at a Hong Kong Netherlands one day years ago where, you know, the, um, the boss of Hong Kong cricket, uh, Tim Cutler now runs emerging cricket and Vanuatu cricket, I think as well. He runs a lot of things, Tim Cutler, but he was talking about how that might, that loss might cost him a million dollars, right? And for a small cricket board, that's kind of the, the ball game, right? And in some ways, Hong Kong cricket really hasn't been a factor in world cricket since they, they lost those games. So it does tell you how, how quickly things change. And, and World Cups are great because, again, everyone is watching. Casual fans watch. The nation gets behind a team at a World Cup. So there's a lot more hype on it. But so much of this bilateral cricket doesn't matter. And 
you could see the thinking behind, you know, World Test Championship, you know, World Cricket League to just make those games matter a little bit more. And I think the England South Africa series is so stupid, right? <laughs> it's only being played because it's con- contractual. I'm trying to remember. I was supposed to commentate those games originally. So at the start of COVID, was it two years ago or something ridiculous like that? messaging people in the the South African team trying to work out what had happened because England didn't turn up or whatever that situation was. And the fact that these games have have come about really just because they were contractual. If they were normal bilaterals, they would have been cancelled. But then they're given this extra context by the fact that South Africa is so bad at the moment. And you know, England were, what, number 146, uh, uh, you know, chasing less than 300 off very few overs. They win those sorts of games so often in one-day cricket. One of the big differences was that you could see that South Africa were just going to keep going. And, and I do think that that is something that is really, really important in, in international cricket. Weirdly enough, in league cricket, you know, if you're playing 20, 30, 40 games a year, it's probably um, slightly, there's only going to be a couple of games that really matter, but the games that really matter do matter. And that was one of them to South Africa. So um, I I think it's a really interesting, um, what would you call it? Uh, It's a conundrum for the ICC because they don't control anything. The World Cricket League was at least an attempt at them to control something and also bring, make those games mean slightly more. Um, also help them with the uh, with the World Cups. It's kind of ridiculous that South Africa qualify for the World Cups because essentially South Africa had a lot of gold in the late 1800s um, and they formed the ICC, so they got ICC membership. Uh, there's a podcast I've done about that on Double Century if you want to go check it out, which is quite interesting. Um, but as I said, the World Cricket League, I think, is a great idea, but I just think it was 20 years too late. And I think we saw in that particular game there that there's a reason why it should exist. All right. I am, uh, after the break, uh, Barrett um, still won't be here. Barrett Sundarason is still not going to be here. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, some of the, the things from that game. Because as we're coming towards the World Cup, I'm started, you know, I haven't really been taking a huge amount of notice of uh, one-day internationals for a little while. But as we're coming towards the World Cup, I'm starting to look more and more on that. So after the break, a little bit on the England-South Africa games. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live. Because you shouldn't have to change teams, even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. So England, South Africa. I'm actually going to do a piece a little bit on uh, South African... uh, cricket uh, one day cricket at the moment there's a couple of really interesting trends so i'll save that for another day there's one thing i want to talk about which i've probably done before i've been obsessed with timber Bavuma for quite a long time um for whatever reason south african batting just keeps getting to me wait until you see my aiden markram takes uh, in in the long form video but a timber Bavuma i find really interesting one thing that uh i always thought watching him and you could probably go back years having a look at this but i certainly said it around the time that he made his way into the one-day team was it was very interesting to me that Temba Bavuma was pushed as a test player. I think he's always going to be at best around, you know, a replacement level test batter. So if he can average high 30s over a long period of time, I think he's doing really, really well. I can't imagine he's ever going to average low to mid 40s um, and certainly not beyond that, not for a career. Um, You know, he's done very well in the last couple of years and he's certainly got his game together. But I just, I think one of the reasons that, 
and this is different than maybe someone like Joe Root, but I think one of the reasons that Temba struggles to get 100 goes back to a podcast I did with Abhinav Mukund, where, and, and I've had other test players tell me the same thing, where in first-class cricket, once you get 250, sort of changing that to 100, unless you get bored um, or something very dramatic happens, you generally you know, can go on um, in that innings, whereas there's no letdown. There's no bit where once you're set in test cricket, you feel comfortable. And so if you are a player who is like Timber Bavuma, sort of a replacement level player, I think your teams are still hunting you. And, and one thing that I remember is um, talking to some bowlers from a team once and his name came up and they said, we feel like we can always get him. So even when he's 60 or 70 not out and he's been batting really well, they still think you know, they're one ball away. That's probably not the case with a slightly better player. But in one day cricket, He's got kind of almost everything that you want. He can hit boundaries. He doesn't hit as many sixes, which is why in T20 cricket specifically is a problem. He's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant runner between wickets. Um, he's so incredibly quick. At, uh, quick at? <laughs> he's so incredibly quick. Um, he certainly is um, a very good judge, judge of a run. Um, and also, the, and the third part of that is, you know, he's very much on the lookout for runs. So if you look, I think some of the best, like I think Johnny Bairstow is probably um, a very, very good runner between wickets. I'm not sure Johnny Bairstow is quite as good as finding uh, extra runs. At, he's from twos and threes, but in, when it comes to singles, as say David Warner or Temba Bavuma are, I think they're two of the better players at putting the ball into a gap. And we're never going to be able to work that out until we have spatial tracking, we have a camera above the ground that tells you. But my guess is that they, those two can put the ball into a, a gap that is not quite a gap, but they go so early and so decisively that they pick runs up that other players don't. All that is important in one-day cricket. He's also just very good at just basic strike rotation. Um, that is not a skill that everyone has. And in T20 cricket... We're now starting to see a real divergence of players who are very good at strike rotating and players who are not so good at strike rotating. Um, and I think Timber Bavuma again has that. The other thing is when we talk about test cricket of you know getting to 30 and 40 and feeling set, um, but you're still being hunted. One day cricket doesn't quite work in that way. It's you know, it's a different thing, which is why you see players um who have the ability to to uh knock, you know, who almost played in a formulaic way. So uh Ryan Tentascata um comes to mind. Um You've got maybe Michael Bevan going back in the old days. MS Dhoni probably that sort of two thirds of his career was another player like this. They just know how to score without being dismissed as much as other players. And then when they're really, really well set at the end, they can probably knock the ball around. And I think again, Timber's probably more in that kind of uh, vein. It's interesting to me that it took so long. But the other thing I just want to talk about him is, and I think this matters more in one day cricket than it does in T20 cricket now. I think in T20 cricket, your best fielders are probably probably the ones uh, who are your boundary patrollers. But I think in one-day cricket, we're still at a point where the most important fielders are probably your ring fielders, uh, which have the abilities to uh, have the most runouts. And uh, in the second ODI against England, Temba Bavuma almost got I remember if it was two or three runouts. And I was commentating with Matt Pryor, but we were watching off mic um, for a little while when we were chatting. And I said to Matt Pryor, do you think he just releases the ball quicker than other people. So we know he's quick and we know he and we know he practices his fielding. We know he gets to the ball quick. That's all fine. Lots of players in, in world cricket who are athletic and get to the ball quickly. His thing is that for, and, and again this is the sort of thing that in cricket eventually we should be timing. It seems to me that from the moment the ball gets into Temba Bavuma's hand until he throws it is quicker than other players. Now that he may not be the quickest in the world. It may be com combined with his actual speed to get to the ball. But it feels like to me his ability to get to the ball, get it in his hand, and throw it 
is just unparalleled in in world cricket. And I'll, I don't think I've ever done a video on this, but one day I'd love to do a big deep dive into it. But we know about 10 to 15, maybe 20% at most cricketers in the world throw with their left arm. But when you look at the players with the most runouts in one-day cricket history, I think it's four or five of the top 10 um, uh, left, uh, left-handed. left So you've got Alan Border, uh, Michael Clark. I think Yuvraj Singh might have been in that list as well. I might, I might be wrong with that. There's a lot of left-arm throwers. And the reason for that is... When you knock the ball into a gap as a batter, you're so used to right-handers. If you knock it to the left of a fielder, you take off. And and there's also angle things involved, you know, with, with people like Michael Clark and, and Jadeja. If they're at point and they're throwing to the bowler's end, they can actually see more of the, the stumps from the position that they're in. Oh, there's a lot of different things involved there. But essentially, that's the case. Temper Bavuma is so quick that even if you hit to his wrong side, because of his ability to get there very quickly and throw the ball um, and release the ball so fast and obviously fairly accurately as well. He seems to make runouts happen when they aren't there. Um, and perhaps Ravi Dudeja, um, who else have you got? Um, uh, uh, Fabian Allen, um, some of these other fa- really fast left-handers still have an advantage over him. But as a right-handed fielder, I almost feel like Temba Bavuma should, people should be thinking a little bit more, you know, working out where he is in the field before they, you know, look for their singles. Um, I think it was Harry Brook. Maybe just because he hadn't played him enough, but just seemed to keep hitting the ball near him and trying to run himself out. Uh, so that was Temba. Another one I wanted to talk about was uh, Liam Plunkett. I was talking to Soham from uh, CrickViz uh, yesterday during the game, and he said, is Ollie Stone potentially a better version of Liam Plunkett? So there's the Liam Plunkett podcast, which which is on this channel. Uh, it's worth uh, having a look at because we talk about how he becomes the sort of this middle overs bowler. It's kind of happenstance. Um some ways it was almost when it was beyond his prime as a bowler. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it had to do with Jason Gillespie and him getting himself a little bit fitter. And then, you know, Owen Morgan wanting a strike bowler in, in specifically in the middle overs. He sort of invented that role. And you look at Ollie Stone and Ollie Stone is much more in his prime. He hasn't played as much cricket. One thing I would say with Liam Plunkett is by the time he sort of got into that position, kind of knew everything he needed to know about cricket. He's obviously going on now to, you know, be quite, he might be a very important person in U.S. cricket going forward, but he was a very, very experienced player. Um, I think was it he played in a two thousand? He played in World Cups right along his career. Is that right? 20, I'm trying to remember what his first one was. Was he 20, 2007 or was he 2011? But he was playing in that era all the way through to 2019. Ollie Stone's not there, but Ollie Stone at the moment is a little bit quicker than what Liam Plunkett was when he went into that role. He's not quite as tall. But you can see now that there are going to be a lot of bowlers like Ollie Stone who have the ability to be really forceful in the middle. middle. We've seen Umran Malik do really well um, in the IPL at taking wickets. He's got to work out his economy a little bit more, but certainly be very good at taking wickets. And and it'd be interesting to see now if there are bowlers who work out that that, or fast bowlers that work out that that is a position for them, that the new ball doesn't particularly suit them. But bowling with the slightly older ball, cross seam, you know, a few cutters, a few bounces and those sorts of things. And Ollie Stone does appear to be another version of that. The interesting thing with England is it seems like they're building a few because I would also say that that is what Mark Wood's main role is going to be. We've certainly seen happen in T20 cricket, whether he is fit enough to ever do it in one day cricket. But that's going to be another development at the moment. I think that's still quite slow moving. And I think what you get at the moment outside of England is when Pakistani seen bowlers ball in the middle, it's usually because they're still hoping for a reverse swing. I think when Umran Malik bowled in the middle, 
um, he was bowling in the middle specifically because they thought uh, he would spray the new ball everywhere and waste the new ball. We saw Prashid Krishnan do that, and now he's moved towards more towards the new ball. But it'd be interesting to see if we see more more of these specialists come through. And Ollie Stone certainly seems like someone um, in that kind of case that might be able to do that going ahead. This could be absolutely nothing. But the last two games, uh, South Africa's batting has been really interesting is that they've started attacking in the power play in a way that they haven't before. It's hard to tell how much of this is situational and how much is because they're playing England and then the second game they were chasing a big score. But they went very, very hard um, in the first game against England in a way that South Africa usually don't do. Obviously, uh, when their number sevens average 13.5, you you don't really want your openers going that hard. But Temba Bavuma specifically has been a little bit um, more aggressive. And I think even Quinton de Kock, I think sometimes Quinton de Kock gets thought of as a more aggressive batter than he is because his top gear is so high, but he doesn't play in that gear all that much. But in the second game, we saw the sort of shots he plays in T20 cricket, you know, that, I don't know, move out the way, pull shot. I don't know what you call it. It's not even really a ramp the way he plays it. It's like a fade, It's like a fading pull shot to fine leg um, that he plays. But, you know, we saw more of that sort of stuff but in both games, they're a lot more aggressive. Be interesting to see if they're going to do that. That's that high risk um, uh, form of cricket because after number six, uh, you know, Marco Janssen, if he's in the side, is the best batting option they've got. Um, I think he averages 20 in list day cricket. He's certainly shown signs of at times being very good, but also other times when he's gone through you know uh, periods where he doesn't look like he can hit the ball. So uh, it's a really, really interesting one for them going ahead, um, how they play that. But I thought that was an interesting part of it. The, the other thing is that between the first game and the second game, there were five changes, uh, two for England and three for South Africa. To Bray Shams, he was probably the only one who was dropped. Uh, he didn't bowl particularly well in the first game. Also, it just looked like a surface that was more uh, for finger spin, and they took in a wrist spinner, and England went for Shamsi. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that um, for, from a Shamsi or a South Africa point of view. They brought in Keshav Maharaj. They've got a great backup spinner straight away. There's no real issues there. The the thing that I, I found more interesting, I suppose, um, was that both teams rotated all their seamers, and they were, you know, Rabada and Jofra made a lot of sense to be rested, but then you also had um, David Willey, who hadn't played a lot of cricket recently, and Magala, who played a little bit more cricket, um, who was being rested, and it just felt like watching baseball platoon style thing. And remember that England makes a lot more sense. They said they wanted to use the majority of their squad. They want to, you know, uh, get some game time under uh, uh, quite a few different players, see different lineups, and as they work. South Africa, though, as I alluded to at the top, it's about them winning. And and yet they're still looking at load management. And it does feel now, it'd be interesting to see how often, and, and this is something really worth watching in the World Cup, that we see teams playing their, their seamers back to back to back because it's not something... Uh, that players are as used to because players just don't play much one day cricket anymore. And those, you know, 10 over spells, if you're going, you're probably not going quite as hard as you do in T20 cricket, but you're also, you know, the way that teams are playing one day cricket, you can't really, it's not like the old days where you could bowl, you know, maybe four overs up top or five overs up top, you know, the ball's swinging around a little bit. Then you come back in the middle and you have your, you know, your, your couple of resting overs um, and then come back on at the death and really the other other teams are only going to attack you for the last four overs. That's not how one-day cricket's played. So from that, or anymore. <laughs> so from that perspective, um, I think you probably have to be, you know, closer to fifth gear throughout um, the majority of your bowling. And will that affect how we see the next World Cup? 
will teams be pushing more? more? And then if if the bowlers are used to bowling, you know, four over spells, and we're seeing fewer bowlers who probably bowl um, all three formats as well, does that mean we're going to see more of this platooning of, um, okay, we're going into these games, uh, you're the bowler we want for these games, and you're the bowler we want for these games. Obviously, if injury or, or form comes into it, we can change that. But beforehand, we want you to bowl at 150 um, kilometers an hour. And so because of that, we only want you to bowl a, a select amount of games. It just feels, and we've been coming at this for a long, long time, um, you know, uh, you know, um, what was the uh, I'm trying to remember what the old cricket Australia phrase was? Um, uh, but you know, we've been coming at this for a very, very long time. Teams have been flirting with it. It feels like one day cricket might be a very, very ideal place for that to start to happen where fast bowlers maybe are used a lot more like baseball pitches, um, than we've seen before. Just something to uh, to, to look out for. Um, the, the other thing, um, that I found very interesting is that this is a series that wasn't supposed to be played now, but. Neither of the, these, well, South Africa might have to play more one days, but neither of these teams are planned to play a huge amount of one day cricket before the World Cup. And they're playing on a very odd surface in South Africa, which during the, the first game, it went from being a, a pitch that was very good for bowling slower balls, probably finger spin, to uh, a very good uh, pitch for, for spin. In the second game, the ball absolutely swung around corners in the morning. Um, and then seemed violently as well, and then did neither um, in the second innings. Um, uh, probably had inconsistent bounce, I would have said, in the first innings. I don't remember any in the second. The point being that I'm not sure this is ideal preparation for either side. So you're getting good practice into your players, but are you specifically getting anything that's going to help them long term? Just, again, something worth looking at from that perspective. All right, uh, let us have another um, uh, quick break, and then after the break, we'll talk about the Under-19 Women's World Cup and the ICC decision to use only women umpires and match referees, I suppose, um, at the Women's World Cup. All right. Uh, welcome back to Uncovered with Jared Kimber. And Barrett Sundaresan is uh, um, absent, retired her, uh, packing for India. Uh, Under-19 uh, under Women's World Cup, I think what most of us thought might happen did happen, which is that the Indian team won because they have a more experienced um, team. Uh, what did they have? Three players who played senior cricket. Um, you know, uh, a bit of a ordinary final in the end. Um, I was trying to follow it while, while following the other game. And, you know, every time I went back, England had lost two or three more wickets. Uh, so a little bit disappointing from that point of view. I think from a, a global cricket point of view, not having Australia, England uh, dominate that is probably a good thing in women's cricket. Uh, you know, it's obviously India are going to come to women's game one way or another with the women's IPL, but this is another good thing happening um, before the women's IPL starts. But women's cricket, especially at the junior level, we saw some great upsets at this tournament and not having one of the two most successful, or the two most successful teams by a long distance in women's cricket um, win the tournament, I think, again, is a really, really important thing going ahead. I'm not, I, I, I think I said with Barra a couple of weeks ago, I find it a very, Odd tournament to think about just because underage tournaments for men makes a lot more sense because men develop a lot later. Um, and so you get a good, you know, you get kids uh, versus kids and having a look at it. Whereas with women, some of these players are physically developed already um, and have senior players and probably 
could have been at 15 and 16 in some cases. So it's a very different kind of tournament than we have for the men's um, tournament. But from the development of cricket worldwide, and especially for the, some of those small, smaller nations who got to send country, uh, teams over, I think it was absolutely fantastic. So it's great that uh, um, it went ahead. Not particularly surprised that India lost. I think the biggest story um, in, in cricket this week is the fact that the um, ICC have made the decision to use only women umpires um, and women when match referees at the World Cup. There's, I have some issues with this, not from a um, not from uh, women shouldn't be umpiring and match refereeing, but they have they've basically done that situation where they've gone from I think in the 2017 World Cup there was one woman umpiring, and so in the space of six years we're supposed to believe that suddenly there is an absolute truckload of women ready to be doing this, and if they have been ready to do this, why have they not been? Um, uh, umpiring more and more, especially men's cricket and majorly and major cricket around the world, or top level franchise cricket and everything else. There's nothing that would say that a woman can't be an umpire or a match referee. So I'm my my concern is that they're throwing a bunch of women in, and if this is a poorly umpired um, series, or even if it's not a poorly umpired series, but there's like two or three crucial decisions, they're kind of throwing them under the bus. Whereas there's no reason for the last six years for them not to be picking the best women in the world and developing them and getting them up to the skills. Uh, I watch NBA games all the time with, um, with male, um, with male, with female referees. I've never ever thought oh, that's a poorly refereed game. There's no reason why they can't do it. It just feels like this. I, I just worry about it from that perspective, but from the other perspective, this is so overdue. <laughs> As I said, a ridiculous situation that we're like, the, the women umpires are so far behind in the game, especially considering the women cricketers have been flying around everywhere for a very, very long time. Um, I would hope in the future as well that it gives um, some former uh, women cricketers from around the world the opportunity to stay in the game longer as professionals. You know, if they don't want to coach and they're not natural media personalities, you know, it gives them a chance to stay in the game. And and I think most cricket boards in the world should have been fast-tracking uh, women umpires, women referees for a very, very long time, certainly way longer than just the last six years. You know, we do, you know, I watch other sports and, and women have more of a prominent role in, you know, things like coaching, player development, um, scouting analysis. You know, it's a long time since Gemma Broad was the England team analyst and it's so rare to see a woman involved in uh, top level cricket. Who's not, I don't know, uh, physio is probably the most one, maybe the masseuse as well. Kind of ridiculous that that is the case. Um, uh, and, and, Cricket hasn't really done a lot about it. So from that perspective, I'm excited that the ICC are, are finally having a go at it. But I think there should have been a bigger move towards developing a women umpires and match referees for a very, very long time um, at the high level, like testing them out before they suddenly all get to a World Cup. But we're here and let's take let's take the victories when we can. Uh, it'd be really interesting to see what the future of um, uh, women in uh, cricket is. And I talk about that from a coaching, I suppose, I'm trying to think of, yeah, analysis, um, you know, those off key field roles, you know, directors of cricket and all that sort of stuff. We've seen, we've seen someone like Belinda Clark have a big role in Australian cricket. Uh, we're starting to see, um, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, Surrey, I think they have, um, I think their analyst is a woman. Um, there are women around. But they haven't really been made that public. Um, it hasn't really been pushed as a narrative so far. And cricket's kind of gotten away with this a little bit. And partly, but probably because women's cricket was so far behind 
um, on its own, that that was the obvious thing to fix. Um, but as someone who's worked in a lot of cricket team environments and even cricket media environments, women just, it's just, it's quite obvious that there's a huge error there. Um, and you know, in my, every time I've ever had a chance to hire, I'm not hiring people because they're women. I'm hiring people because they're talented and there's usually always talented women available, uh, for you to be able to, um, hire. And it feels like in cricket that is, um, and look, there is, I'm not going to, not going to lie, there's a huge misogynistic angle to this. <laughs> As a man who spent a lot of time with other men talking about women in cricket, there's no doubt that this is an issue. But from a cricket board perspective and from an ICC perspective, um, uh, it really, it's shocking to me that it's taken this long. I think I wrote, I think I wrote a piece that said, uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was, 2030 World Cup. I think that's right. So Cricket Island asked me to write a piece for their um, magazine about the future of cricket and imagine that Ireland was hosting the 2020, uh, 2030 World Cup. And on that pace, I think I wrote that Susie Bates was going to be the assistant coach of um, New Zealand for that tournament. And that's kind of the pace I thought cricket was going at. I see a move like this and I wonder, well, maybe we are changing. But um and and the more women play and are successful um, and are part of the game and talk about the game, I wonder if things change a lot quicker. But there's a lot of jobs in cricket that whether you have or don't have a penis doesn't really matter. And I do feel that that is not the way that cricket has looked at it. And so I think we have to take it as a victory from that perspective. But I'm a little bit worried, as I said, that you know we have a tournament where just because we have one of those tournaments where things go wrong um, through no fault of their own of the umpires or the match referees themselves. Um, and they'll be a little bit thrown out under the bus from that perspective. But hey, I suppose that's what happens when you when you break walls and, um, and you disrupt a little bit. So well done to the ICC. Uh, I didn't see this coming. I, actually, it was funny. I was writing something recently about the fact that I thought that the ICC might for this next World Cup, have women umpires at um, uh, at at the twenty twenty three men's World Cup, and that for the women's World Cup they might have a, a much bigger number. But to take it from there to where they have is uh, beyond my expectations. But it's one of those things where it's like, great, they've finally done this thing that made sense probably decades ago, um, and they didn't really take a good look at. So. Um, my experience is that there's plenty of talented women in cricket in many different positions. Um, quite often, a lot of them end up unemployed um, and there's plenty of positions available. And with the influx of women coming through, hopefully things change for the better um, and continue to go. And hopefully they have a good tournament, right? I mean, that's that's the other thing. Uh, you know, you've got to get bad LBW decisions. I don't think that has anything to do um, uh, with uh, w- what they were birthed as um, or how they present themselves in that case. Uh, all right, I'm going to take another quick break. And then after the break, I see there's a bunch of questions. It says Barrett's not here. I shall answer some of your questions today. DM95 says, New Zealand bolt 70 over the spin last night's T20. Uh, when was last night? So it was the Sunday night, uh, 29th, just depending on when anyone's listening to this. <laughs> will you ever see a game? Will we ever see a game with all 20 overs of spin? I, people have asked me this before. I'm not sure it hasn't already happened. I don't know if I've ever checked it, if we're being honest. Probably have, actually. Um, but yeah. Yes, I think it would need to be a special kind of game, a special kind of teams. But yeah, I think it's possible. The you would almost, ha- I would assume it would have to be a second innings where the pace bowlers were so bad in the first innings that you went with it. I've heard teams talk about this before. The the big thing is that teams 
don't trust spinners in uh, the death. And they even in situations where there's a lot of spin um, and the wicket's helping spinners, generally at the death, they still like to have one seamer available to them. But there's, I, I think we'll see more and more extreme ways of T20s being played, um, unless T20s end up being played on synthetic wickets, and then we'll probably never see 20 overs of, of spin. Um, I suppose that's the best way of putting it. Sam says, intrigued to hear what you have to say about... Oh, I've already done that. <laughs> but thanks for your question, Sam. Frofra says, I find it hard to believe why the schedule doesn't have 50 over cricket at the start of the English summer. Yeah, I, I think that there's... The, the start of the English summer is a really weird one because it's seen as this, like, dark ages bit. And when you look at the numbers, I'm pretty sure they don't match up with what people say about it. And I think there is a the theory that if you played it out of the sort of hot bit of the summer that you would get pitches that wouldn't help England play the rest of the summer. Here's the truth. I don't think England are going to play too many internet uh, one day is going forward um, anyway, unless there's a world cup coming up and most of their best players don't play the domestic tournament anyway. So, and I don't think England's going to be the only team that has this, these sorts of schedules going ahead. Sostic says, can you say hi? Hi, Sostic. Our earth is the best. Jason Roy is in woeful form. He made 100 on Friday. It was a really good 100 too. It was a flat pitch. Well, when he was batting on it, certainly it was flatter. I think if you watched him bat in that particular innings, a lot of the problems he's had in the last well, couple of years weren't there. One of his big problems was that he was kind of, his hands were moving independent of his body. He wasn't taking a definitive step forward, which for someone who is such a brilliant player down the ground, you know, is, is taking away one of his strengths. His hands were not only ahead of his body quite a bit but they're also coming across the ball um as a, as i said his, his form against spin didn't really waver as much but his strike rate in t20 certainly dropped and he was being dismissed a lot more by seamers i think in t20 and one day cricket but certainly in one day cricket all of those things were happening to him he looks to me like a very different player now uh, there, there's been a couple of shots off Wayne Parnell and he's not a particularly good player of left arm pace. And I don't think that's massively changed either, but there's been a couple of shots off Wayne Parnell where he's driven him with a straight bat um, through the leg side. And one of those shots, I would say he drove him with a straight bat from a ball that was probably outside leg stump and got it in front of square. Now, if you've ever played cricket, that's not a particularly easy shot to play. That's the kind of shot that says that your feet are working and that your body is in the right position. It's a really really hard shot to play. And I, I'd say he played one extreme version of that and probably two other versions of that, which I had not been, seen him play for a very, very long time. Um, I know he's worked very hard. Uh, I, I was talking to Gareth Batty, his, his Surrey coach about it. He, you know, some of it was mental, but a lot of it was just getting back to technique and enjoying the game again. I think for a little period there after the World Cup, he probably stopped enjoying cricket as much. Um, he's matured a little bit as a person um, in that time. You know, things change and everything else. Uh, but he, uh, Jason Roy is currently not in woeful form, but he had been in woeful form. Uh, that's why he wasn't at the last World Cup. Success value says, uh, do you think women's game can improve with shorter pitch, 20 to 18 yards? Okay, I could not be any more against this take. And I'll go through the reasons why in a minute. The women's game is in, in improving. They're literally, a decade ago, hitting a six in women's game was an event. They just hit sixes all the time now. Um, a decade ago, throwing in from the boundary to stop twos were really, really hard. A decade ago, they all got run out. They would just hit the ball into, the, you know, and they'd try and steal singles all the time. And because the circle's a little bit smaller, they would get run out all the time. How much more do you want the women's game to improve? Go back and watch the... Uh, in fact, after this World Cup, go back and watch um, some of the highlights of the 2009 World Cup. 
if you you can tell me that you can find a form of cricket that is improving quicker than women's cricket, uh, it you know whether it be associate cricket, whether it be T Twenty Test ODI, there's nothing improving at the rate that women's cricket is improving. So when I hear this, I, I think that you don't actually know that that's already happening. The second thing I would say is. I think this would be the death knell for women's cricket below the professional level if we made the pitches shorter. Every time I talk to women in cricket, they say one of the hardest things for them is to get access to really good quality grounds. They even now the majority of the pitches that they play in play on, uh, you know, has to be they have to play, you know, midweek or they have to train at a different time, you know, center wicket practice, playing games because they're fighting for men with pitches. If we make it into a situation where um, we have to make specialist pitches for them uh, from a synthetic standpoint, that causes big problems from a turf standpoint. It means they're going to have to use the pitches after the men use them so they won't get as many fresh pitches to play on. I just don't think they'll get as many wickets. There are certain countries in the world that might help them and certain regions in the world that might help them. I would say the vast majority of ground, um, of, of, of cricket grounds that are available to women drops drastically if you made a uh, this. Also, I don't think it improves the game. It changes the game. I'm not sure it improves the game all that much. Women have a smaller ball, have smaller boundaries, and they have a smaller circle. So from that perspective, if they wanted to, do, if they wanted to make the pitch shorter, fine. But the game's already improving. Uh, I don't really see why. If, if, if all the women in the world come uh, decide that they, they want that, that's completely fine. But this is, I would say, 98% of the time when this theory is brought up, it's brought up by a man who doesn't realize how much the women's cricket has changed already. React Native says, what is the pressure Temba suddenly starts feeling in T20s? It's not that he feels pressure in T20s. I don't think he has a natural game for T20 cricket. Um, he is uh, probably, as I said before, I think he's a natural strike rotator. Not really what T20 cricket is. Don't think he's a six hitter. Again, um, also don't think he's very good at manufacturing boundaries um, in a way that, that you probably have to be. You know, there's lots of players who are very good at other formats of the game. It's, that's that's not a slight on him. I think his fielding and his running between the wickets is quite handy. I, I wonder what his best position would be in T20 cricket, and I think. Opening probably isn't it, but I'm not sure that they don't have better options at three and four. So, you know, it, it, probably his best position is, and they don't have the right team for this South Africa, but in another team, and this is why I was a bit more surprised in the SA20 that other teams didn't see this. I wondered if his best position is as your floating player who can strike, rotate, and keep some pressure off on the bad days. Um, and if the ball's doing a lot, you send him out there. Um, or if, you know, there's a really high-quality spinner, you send him out there. Uh, but there are certain days when he doesn't bat at all, but you still have his leadership and his fielding and, and his professionalism, um, all those things that help. So I don't think I don't think he suddenly feels more pressure. It's just he's not as suited to that format of the game. And there are lots of players like that. And, and also, it's possible that if he just yeah, – and, and this is the case for so many cricketers in the world – I think a lot of the players, if they just worked on one format, whichever format it was, they would probably improve. But now you're looking at perhaps having to deal a little bit more with your natural skills because you're moving between format to format to format. Um, and, you you know, you can only spend so much time working on different things. How does Parnell get in the team? Well, Parnell gets in the team uh, for a couple of reasons. I, I think, you know, it's very, very obvious that uh, – what's the best way of putting it? Um, it's very, very obvious that they want a number seven with some batting skill. So Parnell does have some batting skill. No one's – you know, he does get called an all-rounder. I was about to say no one calls him an all-rounder, but he gets called an all-rounder a lot. But I think having some batting skills – I also think because he's a left-arm bowler, 
you know, he adds some variety to their attack. Uh, you know, he has the abilities to, to swing this. I was thinking about this the other day. If he had the exact same batting talent, the exact same bowling record, but was a right armor, I wonder where he would be in the team. And and also, th- I think going back, I remember talking to people in South Africa who were incredibly excited. They, South Africans were more excited about Wayne Parnell, you know, with and around the team when he came through than England was about Sam Curran. Sam Curran really had to earn their respect. And a lot of former players, even were like, he's not going to make it. I, I don't know what's happening here. Whereas Wayne Parnell, I felt, was very, very different from that perspective. And they certainly, they backed him uh, a lot more. Now, I don't think he's in their best five bowlers, and I don't think his batting is, I, I think I think he averages 20 in one day cricket with a strike rate of like 67. I suppose then in that day, you're like, well, at least if he can hang around a little bit and he's got Miller or Rassi at the other end or Markram at the other end, he can do some damage. But to me, or not do some damage, he can help them do some damage. Um, but to me, it doesn't look particularly likely. <laughs> um, I don't I don't really understand it from that perspective. Um, however, he does a lot of little things that I think uh, teams like. And uh, he's certainly not a bad player. I think we saw him bowl in the second ODI. He bowled really, really well when the conditions favor him. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to me is if he was right-hander with exactly the same record, whether he would have played as much. And I don't think that is the case. Ruben says, if you want to know more about South African cricket scene better, talk to Khalid Mahid, uh, who has a cricket YouTube channel, Cricket Fanatics Magazine. He can tell you a lot of matters about SA cricket than 99.94 SA. Well, I mean, 99.94 is incredible, obviously. Uh, Lungani uh, is incredible. Well, Lungani and, and Manners are incredibly um, close to many people who run the game, who work in the game, and and everything else. I think from my memory that Khalid's channel, which is brilliant, is is a slightly different style. Both things can exist, and both people uh, or both shows are incredible, um, and people should check both of them out um, if you want to know more about South African cricket. So I, I found recently there's been a real like a renewed energy in people looking at South African cricket, whereas I felt over the last couple of years they weren't. So that's all a good thing. Uh, Yuvraj says, uh, do you think India's lack of quality left unpaced will hurt their ODI World Cup chances? I think what it does is we talked to, I've talked about this before with their T20 team and, and probably the left arm thing. It was something that was on my mind, but I didn't want to get massively into it. You want to be able to problem solve at World Cups. That's probably going to be less of a problem for India in India. What having a an, a left arm allows you to do, even if they're not quite in your best, even if it's Wayne Parnell, let's go back to Wayne Parnell, is it allows you against certain teams in certain uh, occasions to use them when you need them. And it's about flexibility and it's easier to scheme against. Everyone's good against right arm seam. Right? You can't be a professional cricketer and not be good against right arm seam. I don't, I don't, it's just impossible. It's almost impossible. Right? And so... But our teams, I mean, England, when Jason Roy and Johnny Bairstow opened the batting and they're both struggling against left arm seam, teams would, you know, we saw Sheldon Cottrell basically get a one-day career off the back of that. Jason Berendorf come in for a game. You know, we have seen teams, uh, you know, completely change their lineups because of that. India doesn't have that ability. England is if England is an interesting team. I don't, I'm not sure, I, I'd have to have a look at the whole lineup. I would assume if Bairstow and Roy open the batting again, they're both still quite weak against left arm seam. So teams might try that again. India can't try that. That's where it's frustrating, right? And I think from that perspective, it's it's very, very interesting uh, how they go about that. 
successfully says there is news about Mickey Arthur being online coach. Oh, is there? Wait, I'm saying coach Mickey Arthur. I have to be careful here because I've been working with Mickey Arthur, so I don't want to break anything that he told me. <laughs> I spent the last couple of days with him. Uh, Mickey Arthur, uh, Mickey Arthur, set to become world's first online coach. Oh, okay, that makes a bit more sense. Let's say that news is true that I've just read out there. We talked about it on another co- episode of of Uncovered that there's a big feeling to get the band back together. I respect Mickey Arthur a lot, and I think he's a very, very good coach. And you know, I actually only met him on Friday. Uh, you know, we commentated a couple of one days together, and we talked a lot about um, uh, cricket together on and off air. He's obviously you know, a next level mind when it comes to cricket and he's a proper coach's coach as well. My big thing is that are they getting him back because he's the best coach? Are they getting him back because Sethi feels comfortable with him because he was around before? Um, and then if they are getting him back and he's um, doing it in this other way, is that going to work? I've got no problem with Mickey Arthur being coach, but are they making him the coach for the best possible reasons or not? How will work online is really, really interesting. I know a lot of coaches now who are, they might be a, a private, like, especially batting coaches. They do a lot of their work away from players. They don't travel around that much with players, especially since COVID, right? It's not, maybe not the ideal situation, but it perhaps allows for more work and less travel. Uh, so with, with Melbourne Stars, I did that analysis back um, at home and not having to worry about going to the game, coming out from the game, um, setting up and all those sorts of things actually allowed me to do more work. What it didn't allow me though, is to just bump into someone around and have a chat to them. And I think that will be the interesting thing, how Mickey deals with that. I think from everything I know about him, and and this is coming from other players who he's coached, you know, all around the world, he's a very, very good coach at reaching out to people in general. Um, you know, former players even that he no longer coaches, you know, checking in on people and all that sort of stuff. So if anyone's going to make it work uh, and, and this report is true, then that kind of makes sense. My worry is that they're employing a coach who is not available um, all the time, who will also be coaching. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to see, I'm assuming, well, actually, I don't even know because uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the reports online. So I'm trying to do this in, in, in real time. Yeah. And also the other thing is, again, I'm just guessing at some of this, is do they want him to be coach or do they want him to be director of cricket slash consultant in charge of the whole thing? Those are two very different things. If he is head coach and he's doing it online, I'm not sure it works 100%. If that's not his job and he's coaching the coaches and also working with the leadership group and then is available when he's not with Derbyshire, that's very, very different. And that Perhaps he is a, a, the best possible situation for that. But is that a, is he better at that than them just going out and getting another coach? I mean, are they even looking at other coaches or have they just decided to go back to Mickey? So the process is wrong. The person is fine. I think in this, in, in the, you know, um, I certainly, someone who's watched his career really, really closely, I have absolutely no problem with that. The process is my bigger issue. And if you follow these my podcasts and my videos, you'll know that that's the thing that um, annoys me the most um, is that, you know, that teams make these ridiculous, even when they make the right decision, they do it completely the wrong way and they don't, you know, they don't think do things correctly. So that usually for me is a far bigger issue um, than, than anything else. It's a really interesting video. We've done, in fact, someone asked me one last one from Karl Marx, not the Karl Marx, I'm assuming. Who owns Hawkeye Data? Hawkeye. Uh, and does one have to pay to use it? Yes. 
Also, if the ICC uses it for reading pitches, then how do they set the standard pitch or standard pitches? Uh, okay, so Hawkeye own it, but there's usually a relationship between Hawkeye and whichever board that they're filming in, especially for bilaterals. Um, I'm not sure if that's the same case for the ICC. Uh, ICC could easily just um, rent the data or they could just contact CrickViz and do it that way. There's many different ways that you can get access to it, but you do have to pay for it. Having said that, the ICC's website used to have reams and reams of Hawkeye data available on it. So they certainly had um, their own um, cache of it. As far as standard pitches, what, you, what you're looking for is not standard pitches. No one wants standard pitches. As long as we keep turf pitches, we want them to be very, very different. We want Guyana and the Wacker. I always use Guyana and the Wacker, and it's really more Perth Stadium now, isn't it? There's all these young people going, what's the Wacker? Um, Guyana and Perth Stadium, we want them to be different right? That's fine. What we don't want, though, is a pitch in Guyana where no matter where you pitch the ball, it um, it doesn't get above knee height, right? Um, and so what you're looking for is then the ability for batters and bowlers. What you don't want is a pitch that seems sideways or spins sideways um, all the way through the game. What you don't want is inconsistent bounce. Um, so if you have inconsistent bounce on day end of day three into day four and day five, you'd be like, oh, that's fine. If the first two days uh, you you leave one ball and it hits the middle of the stump and the next ball you leave and it hits you in the shoulder, there's a problem with the pitch. Um, again, if there's no sideways movement at all throughout a whole game for spinners or quicks, that would be a problem. If if it's so uh, if if the ball's coming off so slow that um, that players struggle to get wickets and make runs, that's another bad pitch. That's what we're really, really looking for. The other thing that we could do is, because we, we already have all this data on all these wickets, we can actually work out what the best Guyana wicket is and what these other wickets are. And, and then it also allows for the groundsman to come in and go, okay, so the data says this, and this game did this. It's actually not as big a variation as you would think, but what happened here was that everyone went out and nicked all these balls, whereas usually there would have been a lot more plays and misses. Fine. We can look at the data of also what the batters did, not just what the ball did, match that up and go, he's right. They've been bowled out for two days, but actually the expected wickets was only 23 wickets over that first two days, and somehow we saw 40. All of these things are available to us if we use that information. If we don't use that information, we literally, I mean, look at this last one. Andy Pycroft sat there and went, oh, God, this pitch is terrible. England's made 500 runs in a day. I'm giving it a demerit point, all right? And then the ICC go, oh, but there were 37 wickets. Well, of course, there were 37 wickets. One team was scoring at seven runs and over and then had a declaration total. There were 37 wickets because England squeezed it out, quite obviously, for anyone who watched that game. That's fine. Andy Pycroft and the ICC are both right. They are saying factual thing. What they're not looking at is what the pitch is doing, all right? That is how you determine if a pitch is good or not. You don't determine a pitch on the fact that one test goes for a day and a half and there's eight wickets in another test. You determine a pitch based on the fact of what happened when the ball hit that surface. Because you, you could have a two-day test match in, I don't know, Trent Bridge, where everyone goes, oh, terrible pitch, what are they doing, blah, blah, blah. And then you go back and Crickviz will look at it and go, well, it wasn't seam, actually, it was swing. What's Trent Bridge supposed to do? You know, change the quality of their air? So... You know, these are ridiculous situations. We now know what the expected average of an off spinner from Ashwin is when it turns in at a certain amount. If he's playing in a test match where he's getting a lot of spin um, and in one test match he gets eight wickets and the other test match he gets 18 wickets, but Crickvis can say to us, we didn't get any more spin in either wicket and actually it was just as easy to bat on that wicket as it was on that wicket, just that for whatever reason, in that one their batters batted well and that one they didn't. 
great. Now we know the truth, right? These things are not, um, these things are not particularly hard to, you know, uh, work out. These things are, it's all there. We have the information with us. And, and this is, I, I suppose this was what annoys me. We are 20 years into using this technology. And there are people at the ICC that still don't understand what this technology is, how it's used, and, and how to use it better. And that's unacceptable, right? It's absolutely unacceptable. There are so many ways that we can continue to use uh, some of this technology um, and move our game forward and make, you know, I don't want to say we ever get to objective decisions because I think there will always be a touch of subjectiveness in, in any kind of system like that. But how, at the moment, it's all subjective. It doesn't need to be subjective. We don't need to do that. That what the final results are does not always tell you if a pitch is good or bad. Sometimes they give you a really good idea. And certainly anytime there are extreme, you know, day and a half tests and 12 wickets in a test match, those are the wickets we should be definitely checking. We should be checking all wickets until we get more and more information. Also, maybe this is information that can go back to the grounds. Yeah, staff, the curators, the, you know, the, the CEOs, anyone to be able to say, okay, have you just noticed that your pitch is slowing down, right? Or have you just noticed that the ball's seeming more now or the ball's spinning more now or the ball's spinning a lot but slowly? All of these things should be available to everyone in cricket. That's why on earth would we not want to do a system like that? So uh, from that perspective, yeah, uh, Hawkeye data is, I think, in some cases co-owned by the boards, in some uh, cases completely owned by Hawkeye. The ICC also owns quite a lot of that or co-owns a lot of that data. But you can you don't even need to go to Hawkeye. You could go to Crickvis and get access to all this information um, and certainly move things forward from that perspective. Anyway, that's the end of uh, Uncovered for today. Uh, thank you to Barat, probably his best episode so far. <laughs> um, uh, he should be back next week. We'll probably be doing them different hours because he'll be in India and not in Australia. So, uh, you know, check your local guides. No idea when they're going to be. And whatever time I say they're going to be, they'll be five or ten minutes later because someone will give me a phone call at the last minute. Um, but yes, uh, there's the Hawkeye video that we've got up, which um, is one of my favorite videos we've ever made. It's a little bit ridiculous, but hey, I'm a little bit ridiculous. Um, we have another. We've got a bunch of really good content coming up on the Women's World Cup. We're doing a couple of really big series at the moment. I've got uh, my man Cheyenne Khan um, has come uh, to help work for me um, over from Sports Kita. So he's helping out with a lot of stuff, um, and, and that is really cool. Got some really interesting stuff on South Africa batting, as I said before. I've got a video on a, on, on, on a stunt person as well coming out, so not, not particularly cricket there, but um, uh, something quite cool. Uh, if you haven't checked out the Chris Green video, which went up a few days ago. Those are also cool. And in podcasts, I talked to Harry Gurney, which I think is the next episode coming out um, in, in, in Red Inca. And uh, Harry's really, really interesting, uh, really interesting career, how he suddenly basically goes from being a county bowler to in one year being um, the face of T20 franchises all around the world. And on top of that, he also, he played for England before England was, England in white ball cricket. And then as Harry Gurney got better and better at white ball cricket, never got another chance. There's just lots of really interesting little things and, and how he goes about it, especially if you're interested in slow balls and um, death bowling and all that sort of stuff. But also Harry's just a really, really interesting um, player from uh, – um, yeah, just a really interesting player and story, I think. So um, hopefully you all enjoy that one. Um, and I'm trying to think what else we've been working on. Got some – Oh, and very soon with uh, uh, with Abhishek Mukherjee, we'll be doing 
I'll probably do a podcast on the history of man cutting, and then I'll also do a video not long after um, as well, and look into you know all the different parts of it and the history of it, but also you know the mechanics um, and everything else, and why it's probably changing in modern cricket, and people are thinking about it differently. But huge thanks to everyone who came on. Remember, you can watch these videos now on Facebook, Twitter. YouTube, and you can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Check out all the 99.94 podcasts out there as well. And that's all I have, really. I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network. Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94, where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sindarisen is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account. Podcast Network.